Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo family. If you do have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 19. Uh, Before we jump in, though, and and I'll get to this uh, later, um, I also just want to say something just real quick, just a a word of thanks. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but on a given Sunday morning this time of year, we have roughly 13 to 1,400 people that'll pass through the doors of our building. It's it's incredible, and I'm grateful that you're all here. Uh, For a weekend service, we have roughly 150 people that'll serve every week. You saw them this morning, maybe in the parking lot, uh, handing you your coffee, Kindeo Kids, we see up on the stage volunteers leading us in worship. We have a tech team in the back. Uh, You also saw on display today our incredible safety team, uh, trained volunteers who give themselves to be just watchful eyes in this place. And if ever there was a panicking parent looking for a child and didn't know where to find them or something was lost or we have a medical incident like we had here this morning, which happens, uh, that they can be quick to respond. And I I don't know who all was in here and able to see uh, both the medical incident there with Isaac, but then the quick response, Paul Burgett, I saw you, one of our doctors here that attends our church uh, on the scene. I also saw our awesome volunteers. Can we just say thank you for them and for all that they do in serving us? Yeah. Yeah, I, I shot a quick text to Dan, who's the lead of our safety team, just said, hey, how is everything? He's like, he's alert, responsive, and we got him in good hands. And so praise God for that. Um, but as we jump into John 19, here, here's what I want to do. I want to set the scene a bit today because there's this beautiful moment in the life of Jesus, like right in the, the final hours of his life where he gathers up what isn't just like 12 men randomly selected. Like, like It's not just like 12 mere followers, simple disciples. He gathers up 12 men who have become his friends. That like caught me this week as I just reflected on Jesus' relationship with his disciples, that he would call them friends. And just the comfort that it is to know that Jesus is a friend and calls people friends who are flawed, broken, say one thing, do another. Men who even had doubts about him. Men who had failed him before and would fail him again. He looks at them and he calls them friends. And he says these words to them. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And just a few hours after those words are spoken, this scene unfolds in John 19. We'll pick up in verse 16. It says, then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, I have written what I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. And they also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top 
And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the sister of uh, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, this is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. And so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Today, we're stepping into week two of a three-part sermon series where we want to remind ourselves of the hope beyond our hopes. We use that word differently in certain occasions, right? Like hope has kind of a few different versions. Like there is the wishful thinking kind of hope. Like I might say, I hope the Red Sox win the World Series this year. Anybody else, Trent? Yeah, I mean, there we go. Okay, there's like five of us in here. You said the White Sox, they got no chance. No chance. Right, but you get, you get that, that version of, of hope, right? I, I hope the Red Sox win the World Series, right? This is different. Christian hope is different. It's not a wishful kind of hope. Christian hope is a certain hope, an unshakable hope, the type of hope that you can build your life upon and know that it will not fail. So we're reminding ourselves of a hope beyond our hopes by reminding ourselves of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel is built on three things, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Last week, Jake did an incredible job answering the question, why does the life of Christ matter? Today, I wanna to answer the question of why does the death of Christ matter? And it might be easy for you to like real quick kind of check out and be like, I know the answer to this one. Like I, I, I didn't even need to come here today, right? Like I, I know like Jesus died for my sins. Like I know that one. That's great. I will say this though, like don't check out yet because there's a huge difference, is there not, right? Like, like knowledge is good. Knowing something is good, but there's a big difference between knowing something and understanding what it means. Like knowing that Jesus died for my sins and understanding what that means for me today. And even on top of that, there's a massive difference from not only knowing what something means and then understanding what it means to actually having it overwhelm you like it's supposed to, that you would erupt with joy and have no other like action in life but to just tell others about it. Knowledge is, is a good starting place, but erupting joy is God's desired destination for us. So if the good news of Jesus Christ does what it's supposed to in us this morning, that should be the result, erupting joy. And hopefully I'll stay out of the way and God will do his work and his people. But here's what I wanna do. To be able to focus on the death of Christ, I just wanna focus on those three words that he spoke there 
before he gave up his spirit. It is finished. And I want to unpack each of those words. What does it mean? What's, what's is about? And then finished. And unpack that for us as we delight in the completed work of Christ on the cross. So let's start with that first word, it. What is Jesus referring to when he says it is finished? I believe Jesus is referring to two related things, okay? So stay with me on this one. Two related things. The first thing he speaks to in verse 28, chapter 19, that after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished and that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. If you have a pen, you can underline that phrase, that scripture might be fulfilled. It's actually in that text that we read this morning three times, that what was happening there was fulfilling scripture. So when Jesus says, it is finished, I think one of the things that he's referring to is God's eternal plan for salvation. That scripture had been talking about for years and years and years, it is finished. It is finished. When you see the cross, understand this, you are looking at a group project. The Father and the Son working together for the same end goal. As you look at the cross and you see how gruesome and unjust it is, you must remember that everything in that moment is going according to plan. Nothing in there is a surprise to God. This is exactly the way he designed it. Here's why. Because if you go all the way back to the opening pages of our Bibles, the opening times of, of, of human history, what you'll see is you see a God creating the world with a perfect design. And in its perfect design, one of the aspects is that out of just his overflowing joy, he creates Adam and Eve. And they have perfect and unbroken relationship with him. That's what we see at the start of creation. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It doesn't take long, though. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve, in the midst of temptation, choose a path of rebellion and push God away. In that moment, sin enters the world, and the world moves from a place of, of perfect, unbroken, beautiful design into brokenness. And it's in the darkest of the darkest moment in all of that that God speaks the first promise. I'm going to send someone, and we are going to fix this. You see that right away in Genesis 3.15, if you want to read that later. And all throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, God repeats this promise, this promise of a coming one who he together is going to work with, and they're going to fix this. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to that. Like you see it and how God clothes Adam and Eve that's pointing forward like a flashing arrow to Jesus. You see it in the Exodus when God's people are led out of slavery into freedom, into relationship with God. You, you see it there that that even points forward to Jesus. You see it uh, in the law that's given and the sacrifices that are made. You see it in all the flawed kings over and over again, this repeated promise that God is going to do something. Another example of this is 700 years prior to Jesus entering the scene, God speaks through his prophet Isaiah these words. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. 
over and over and over again. God repeated this promise. As Jesus is nailed to the cross, everything is going according to plan. The soldiers dividing up his garments, that was foretold hundreds of years prior in Psalm 22. The offer of sour wine, that was foretold hundreds of years prior in Psalm 69. Everything is going according to plan. So when Jesus says, it is finished, I believe he's referring to God's eternal plan for salvation. You can even see it, just, just one more like, bit of evidence. You can even see it there at the end of verse 30 when it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. Him being God, he didn't have to do that. But, but catch that word, he gave up his spirit. Even there, it's displaying that Jesus is not some pawn in somebody else's plan. He is the co-architect of this plan of salvation and a willing sacrifice, giving himself up. For us. So I think one of the things Jesus means when he says it is God's eternal plan for salvation is finished. But more specifically, though, it, I believe, refers to sin, brokenness, and death is finished. See, one could ask the question, hey, why does like what Adam and Eve did way back when, like, why does, why does that matter today to me? Because understand this, Romans 5.12 tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned. Like when they opened up Pandora's box, like we've never been able to close it back up again. But ever since the moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we've now lived under the reign of sin, brokenness, and death. I, I don't believe I have to belabor this point. Like to get you to just for a moment, just to, to think about the world that exists around us. If I go describe it in a few words, I bet even you yourself, Christian or not, would say broken, right? Like we even sing it in one of our worship songs that's kind of like a question and answer format. When we sing this phrase, do you feel the world is broken? You guys know the song? And what's the truthful reply that we give when we sing that? We do. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion, the world has been marked by brokenness. And I think that we're really good at being able to like spot it out there. The question I have for you this morning to bring it like closer to home is, do you see yourself as broken? Do you see yourself as sinful? If you want like a simple definition of sin, it's, it's simply this, to miss the mark. Like think almost like, as a, like an archer like pulls back an arrow and releases it to a, toward a target. Like sin is to essentially to, to miss the mark. And there's two ways in particular that, that we can sin as people, right? We can know what God wants us to do, that God commands us to do something, but we miss the mark. Like God commands us he calls for us to love and care for the poor, orphans, widows, refugees, and foreigners. It's to know what we're supposed to do, to be commanded to do something and to not do it. That's one way that we can sin. Another way that we can sin is when God tells us not to do something and we do it. Like when God commands us not to orient our lives around anything or anyone other than him. 
And yet here we find ourselves orienting our time, our, our energies, our efforts, our resources, our affections around hobbies, jobs, even things that like the world would encourage us, like, oh, that's a good thing, like, like your spouse, your kids, whatever. That those things become the orienting center of our universe more than God. We can miss the mark in a lot of ways. Now, again, somebody could respond, okay, like, I get it. Like, I missed the mark, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person, right? We're, I mean, I'm only human after all, right? I mean, when you start answering even the question and, and asking the question of, are we, are we good or are we evil? Are we a good person or a bad person? Maybe I'm like, I'm not, not, not so bad or whatever. The question is always then like, well, what's the standard? Like, what's, what's the mark? Who sets the mark? How close do I have to be to it to know that I'm good enough? Like that whole thing. You start to ask all those questions. Because if you go, well, if the standard of like a good person is like, you just got to be better than Hitler, then I'm, I'm all right. But then you go, but if the standard is more like uh, Mother Teresa, it's like, ah, I got some work to do. But what if I said the standard isn't either one of those people? In fact, it's, it's God himself. Like perfect in righteousness. That the standard is perfection. The bar that God himself sets. Now, all of a sudden, the gap between me, Hitler, even Mother Teresa doesn't seem so far, right, compared to the incomparable greatness and perfection of God, if that's the standard. Jesus himself, he, he displayed, he demonstrated the standard. He set the bar and he calls us to it. This is just some of my Bible reading from a couple weeks ago, I was just walking through the Sermon on the Mount, reflecting on the commands of Christ on my life and how I missed the mark. He says in Matthew 5, 5, to be humble. I'm not that. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. To be merciful, Matthew 5, 7. To be pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8. To not be angry toward others, Matthew 5, 22. That when I'm mistreated, to not seek vengeance, but to turn the other cheek. Matthew 5, 39. To not just love my neighbor, but to love my enemies and to pray for those who would even do me harm. That's a hard one. I fall short of that one. That's Matthew 5, 43. That when I pray, fast, or give, that I should not do it being motivated by what others think about me. Matthew 6, 1 to not store up treasures on earth, but to use my money to store up treasures in heaven. It's Matthew 6, 19. To not be anxious, Matthew 6, 25. To not judge others, but to own my sins first and then in love, help others be freed from their sins. Matthew 7, 1. I don't know about you guys. I, I've just walked through 11 commands from three chapters of the Bible. There's 1,186 other chapters we could walk through. We missed the mark. In fact, what we're reminded of in James 2.10 is that when we actually break one command, that enough is enough to separate us from God. That when we break one command, it's like we break all of them. 
Isaiah 64, 4 tells us that even our most righteous acts are even but filthy rags before the throne. And I, and I recognize that that's true because even when I do things like outwardly right, like even when I, I have a, a moment that looks like I'm loving my neighbor, like I go out and they're on vacation and I, I mow their lawn without them even asking, there's still a part within my heart that I'm all jacked up because I'm doing it for wrong reasons, right? I'm hoping that somebody else is gonna see this and be like, wow, man, look at that guy. He, he must really love Jesus. Like, that's, that's what I want. Like my motives are all jacked up. And worse than all of these things that I missed the mark in all these different ways, worse than it all, guys, and this is like confession time. Like I don't, maybe you want to confess stuff to me later, but like I, this is just like me to you. Like worse than all of this is just the ongoing just stubbornness in my own heart. There's a hardness in my heart that, that doesn't want to own that these things are actually true about me. And I'm guessing that may be true about you as well. And here's the reality of our status, like the, the spot that we're in, that we missed the mark, right? This is the reality, as Romans 2.5 tells us, that because of our hardened and unrepentant heart, we are storing up wraths against ourselves for the day of God's wrath when his, note this word, his righteous judgment is revealed. Like there's, there's forms of like wrath and judgment that you could look at that you might see in this world today and go, that was wrong, that was wicked, that, that was retaliatory, that was, that was full of anger, all of those things. Like what we're talking about here, like God's judgment for what we've done is a right judgment. That though we've known what we are to do, we miss the mark. We could sit here and talk all day about how we want a world free from evil, free from injustice. I don't think we recognize that in order for God to create such a world, he has to wipe out evil and injustice, including me and you. So the question as we walk through this text is not, am I a sinner or do I deserve judgment? It's actually, if we humble ourselves, it's asking, well, what is God's posture towards sinners and those under judgment? And I just wanna encourage you with this, John three sixteen, popular verse, for God loved the world in this way. You wanna know God's posture towards sinful, broken people is love. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So when Jesus says it, the it is referring to God's eternal plan of salvation, but even more specifically, our sin, brokenness, death itself, it is finished. Now let's, let's go into the word is, okay? We're gonna get a little technical here. But the word that we're unpacking here is actually, it's one Greek word translated into three English words because there is no equivalent for the word that Jesus spoke from the cross that goes directly from the Greek to the English. But the word that Jesus spoke from the cross is the Greek verb tetelestai. I'll spell it for you if you wanna write it down. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I, tetelestai. Guys, I'm about to go over my skis. I'm not a very smart person. I had to have somebody else explain this to me. So those in the room that are like math majors and like math, or not math majors, uh, English majors and English teachers, help me out, okay? Like I, I know I'm, 
But this, this is what I, I read is that the word here, tetelestai, is, is unique in a Greek verb because it's in the perfect tense, which means that it's a combination of two Greek tenses. The perfect tense is a combination of two Greek tenses. tenses. The aorist tense, which is a snapshot of what is true, of something that is true in that very moment. And a combination of like what's true in that very moment and the present tense, which is what will continue to be true forever. To pull this back, that was me like in an English lesson of which I do not deserve to give that. So pull back. Essentially what he's saying when he uses the word is, is he's saying now and forever. It is now in this very moment and forever. What was true for the thief on the cross in that moment being crucified next to Jesus, what was true of him in that moment is true today, will be true tomorrow, and will be true three trillion years from now. Wrap your minds around this. There is never going to be a time in our eternal future where this phrase, it is finished, isn't true. You want a foundation for your life, something to build your life upon that is stable and unmovable. It is this phrase. It is finished. So now the word finished. By far and away, the absolute worst job I ever had in my life and was technically my first job off the farm. I think I was like nine or 10 years old. And I think they paid me $1.50 an hour. I think that's called child labor abuse, like something like that, right? Like, but I got hired by like a family friend to weed their strawberry patch. And weeding's fine. In fact, I kind of consider it like a therapeutic exercise in this stage of life that I'm in. I think that's part of growing old. Um, what made it difficult at the time is the only two tools that I were, was given, I would even say utensils that I was given to weed this strawberry pant, patch was a fork and a butter knife because they did not want me to wound the plants. So I would spend hours bent over, like cutting through the soil, you know, with a butter knife and a fork. And that's how we weeded their strawberry patch, like one row at a time for acres. I will tell you this, I learned very early in life, the joy of hearing the phrase, finished, okay? And maybe you can relate in some other like task that you've been given in life. This word is, is beautiful, but understand when Jesus says finished, he's not crying out as, and I, I, Josh, I'm gonna steal this from you because you prayed this earlier. I'm like, that was an awesome prayer. This is not the cry of some defeated martyr. Like I'm done, I'm over. This is the cry of a conquering king saying, no, I've won, it's over, it's finished, it's done. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. That's what Colossians 2 tells us. First Peter 3, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. 
That's what he did. I think another way that I could explain this or even illustrate this, like, like how this is even possible, like what happens on the cross, um, I want to highlight for you something that we as Christians celebrate as what's called the great exchange. Because that's what Jesus is talking about when he says like, it is finished, is now this offer that he has purchased for us of the great exchange. And we, we get what the great exchange is. This is where I'm going to pull this out. All right, so college students, you guys know what this is, right? Especially after the week that we're having, right? We've got this in our rooms, apartments, dorm rooms, right? It stinks. Okay, so you're about to experience what's called the great exchange. Because I know how the first two weeks of school go. You come in, you have your first week of classes. It's a thousand degrees out. This stinks, so you got a massive pile going. But now you're starting to figure out how do I make this last as long as possible? Because I got a three-day weekend coming up. You know what I'm talking about? So in five days, you're going to go home for a three-day weekend. You're going to come back here on Sunday, though. Huh? But you're going to go home for your three-day weekend, and what's going to take place is this incredible great exchange. Because your mom or your dad, they love you. And they miss you. They miss the smell of your dirty clothes. And so you, what you're going to do is you're going to walk into the house. You're going to set this down somewhere inside the door, if you're a good child. Some of you would just leave it in your car and expect your parents to find it. No, you'll bring it in the house, you'll set it inside the door, and magically, you don't even know how it happens. But that, that basket will all of a sudden, a day or so later, return back to you, and everything in it will be smelling good. Same clothes, but it all smells good. It's all folded up. And you'll take that back to school for round two and go, so how long does it have to last this time? Or I get the great exchange. All right, so you, you get that. Like, you get that. Here's what the great exchange is when it comes to the gospel, okay? This represents me, which ironically is like all my dirty laundry. There's a metaphor there, right? And guys, this represents me and what's true of me, that I missed the mark. I am a sinner, Every day I add more and more to this basket. What's also true of me is because of my sin, I am in active rebellion against God. Scriptures call us when we're in sin an enemy of God. And because of that, I deserve death. And my life is defined by shame and guilt. Here's the beauty, though, of the great exchange here is it's not just that when Jesus died on the cross for us, all of a sudden what comes back to us is the same old clothes, they're just clean. He's got something way better for us. I need to, I need to grab something else over here now. It's way, way better than just getting the old clothes back nice and clean. What God gives us in the great exchange is a whole new wardrobe. Like the old is completely gone and what we're given is totally different. He now clothes us in righteousness. I mean, this is what kind of connects last week's message of the life of Christ and why the life of Christ matters with this week's message of why the death of Christ matters is that when we place our faith in Christ, this incredible great exchange takes place that Jesus takes what's true of me, that I am a sinner, that 
I'm an enemy of God, that I deserve to die. And he takes it upon himself in the cross. And what he gives in return is not just simply that I'm now declared clean, innocent. That if I was at like negative 10 before, that now he brings me back to zero. And I'm like starting with like a fresh slate. It's way better than that. The gospel is way better than that. Because what happens is you take what's true of Jesus. That he was innocent, perfect, had full relationship with the Father, deserving of an eternity with him. That righteousness that defines Christ, the joy that defines Christ, and you now place that in my account. That I'm not just declared innocent, but that God would actually look at me clothed in Christ and actually see Christ and no longer me. He no longer sees my sin and brings judgment on my sin like I deserve. He looks at me and he sees me as he sees Christ. That would be righteous. The word righteous means, like the E-O-U-S ending means full of something. Like if you're courageous, it means you're full of courage. Righteous means that I am full of right, that God would actually look at me and see the 33 years of Christ's life and his perfect life. That in the times when he was tempted and responded with humility, responded by turning the other cheek, all of that, that those things get credited to my account. And all the times that I missed the mark are now completely gone. Not just innocent, but righteous. This is what Colossians uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the most mind-blowing verse I could show you. That's the great exchange. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I want you to understand this. Because that isn't just like a one-time exchange, right? That, that at some moment when I placed my faith in Christ, which for me was, was when I was 16 years old, was when I first recognized my sin and placed my faith in Christ and this great exchange took place for me. It wasn't like from that point on, like I stopped sinning and was perfect. But the way that I now related to sin was totally different. Because I knew that not only in that great exchange had Jesus paid for my past sin, but he had paid for my current sin and all of my future sin. It's all covered and paid for. And so I don't interact with my sin with the same level of identity with it or shame that it once had or the grip and the power that it had over me once before. I have been freed by Christ and now walk through this world knowing that yes, I do sin, but Jesus has paid it all in full. When he says, it is finished, that's what he means. It's over. I paid for it. And if you place your faith in Christ, that's the offer on the table for you, that he will look at your sin and say, it's finished. I've got it. I picked up the tab on that one. You get two simple choices in life. Either you pay for the price of your sins or you let Jesus pay for them. That one should be easy for us. Guys, 
this. This is the best story ever told. I mean, every book, every movie, right, is built around the idea of sacrifice and heroes and things like that. It all pales in comparison to the beauty of this story of one who would lay down his life for his friends. I can't even, I mean, just that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the king of all things, hung on a cross for us. It's why we take the Lord's Supper together as a regular reminder of the blood of Christ poured out for us and the body of Christ broken for us. But I, I wanna also give an invitation because we as believers, we take this together to continue to remind ourselves of the hope upon which we've built our lives. But there's also an invitation, both in this and in the other sacrament of the church in baptism, for you, if you've yet to place your faith in Christ, for you to join us and place in your hope in Christ. See, the invitation of Christ when it comes to his death that when we look at the cross and see it is finished, we also should recognize that if you go, I want to place my faith in Christ, know that his invitation for you then is to come and join him in his death. The invitation to the Christian life is for you to join him by picking up your cross and dying to yourself. This is why Paul wrote these words, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross of Christ calls us to our own cross, to put to death our old self and to walk in new life. If you wanna place your faith in Christ, that's the call on your life. And I would throw this invitation before you. If you are putting your faith in Christ today or have recently and have yet to get baptized, what baptism displays, and we'll have baptisms here in two weeks. You can see in the program how to sign up and all that. But in two weeks, we will have, three weeks, sorry, we'll have baptisms. And the picture of baptism is of a person who's standing above the waterline, going under the waterline as they're like dying to who they once were and rising out in new life and the resurrection power of Christ, identifying with his death so as to identify with him in his new life and resurrection. The invitation of the cross is an invitation to our own cross, to our own death, but to true life, to truly live. And so church, as we now celebrate together the blood of Christ poured out for us and his body broken for us, if there's sin in your life that you wanna confess the joy that we have to know that it's paid for. We have one who intercedes today on our behalf. We can celebrate that. So you can pray about that. I'd also encourage you, if you've yet to place your faith in Christ, to now you can receive him as savior and Lord of your life. To turn from the way that you previously lived, to die to who you once were and to walk in new life. And to be marked by faith and obedience to Christ. Let's spend some time in prayer and then I'll close us in prayer. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.